show this is the time and place where we discuss things that are interesting to us and that sometimes means those things might be interesting to others as well emphasis on the sometimes yeah so if you've come back after the previous four episodes it means one of two things either you are a sad sick twisted masochist or we are actually starting to sound at least mildly interesting to Someone besides ourselves. I will not at this time speculate on which is the correct reason. <laughs> yeah, please don't. By the way, I'm the J in this show dizzle, and he's the pop. Oh, shit. For We are ordinary father-daughter citizens by day, podcasters by night, and superheroes by later that night. Hey, Ixnay on the Uber Hero Say Jess. Jeez. Okay, anyway, today we're going to talk about truth and beauty and all things related. Sounds like a simple and easy topic, eh? What? De gustibus non est disputandum. Hey, there's always room for dispute. And quit speaking Latin. Istibundus feriamundus. <laughs> Well, so um, some this episode, truth, beauty related, yes. I think we're also thinking about artistic relativism. So putting those two terms together, aesthetic relativism. Sometimes it's it's talked it's uh, referred to. It's a concept that's become more epidemic with the rise of relativ- relativism, just generally. Well, wait, I I actually love that phrase, artistic relativism or aesthetic relativism may not be a catchy show title though maybe we need to squeeze in truth and beauty and or artistic relativism but we can squabble about that later mm-hmm. and okay we will. anyway tell me again what this concept of artistic relativism actually means well it's like the it's the belief that in any branch of art all works are inherently equal because we all have varying tastes so Who's to say what's better or worse? And this is like the exact sort of thing that I spent my... Uh. Yeah, this is what I spent my collegiate years being fired up about and fighting. Yeah. Yes, we have discussed this many a time under many different titles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because like I would be called names like an absolutist or um, foundationalist, basically believing that there is a a purpose or reason. Yeah. And it's not just people like me. It's funny. I read this article against art relativism, or if you ever wanted to call me an elitist snob, here's your chance. And it's funny to me that in wait, that was the title of it. Mm -hmm. It's from, if you ever wanted to call me an elitist snob, here's your chance. Yeah. It was from, I love it. (laughs) 
Oh, I had it written down. I think it was from originalgentleman.com. It's a, it's some mail website, but, uh, it was a kind of an esoteric piece, but it was funny because during my time fighting relativism and like leftist ideology, I was the one on, on the side against artistic relativism, but this author who also argues against it, against the idea that, you know, goodness and truth and beauty and art is just purely, purely relative, relative, he found proponents of of artistic relativism were mostly people who were uneducated. And I kind of found the opposite. The academia elite always, in, at least in my time, were still very postmodern. So they were very, very much about the uh, relativism in art. Um, even though there was developing like a post-postmodernist, like quote-unquote legitimate artistic movement. Although I don't want to get like in the weeds with art theory, but... Well- I was about to sound the tangent alarm as far as being in the weeds. I mean, this is actually really, really fascinating. Mm-hmm. When you said the wars, <laughs> actually, we may have lost people at post postmodernism, mm-hmm. but when you talked about fighting the relativism wars, it just reminds me how far our society has. I could say fallen, or maybe I should say progressed with the quotes around it, like progressives. But mm-hmm. I mean, when I was, when I was young, uh, the wars that I was fighting were the disco wars. I fought proudly in the disco wars. We killed disco, but guess what? It came back. So even if you think you're going to win this, it will come back. But I digress. Well, just even if it's a little bit too technical or whatever, just at where I'm coming from, I study, I had to study postmodernism, modernism, all the artistic movements. And postmodernism, what we're mired in right now with relativism throughout our life, but specifically in art, it, it pretty much means that anything is art and no one has authority to declare anything better than anything else. It's like the def- defini- definitive relativism. And the movement was kickstarted, I would say. Well, we learned that it was pretty much kickstarted with Marcel Duchamp, a French artist, quote unquote. It's always the Frenchies. <sighs> yeah. Well, he's now he's most famous for his. They're called ready mades. Basically, you find something and that's your art. Um, this one. Wait, wait. What do you mean? You find something. Well, a ready made is, you know, you, you. For, for example, his he found uh, found a piece of a urinal, the the head of the urinal. And he, yeah. he signed it, uh, R. Mutt, which is the name of a cartoon character, and he titled it Fountain. And he submitted it to an art exhibition. This exhibition claimed that it was not judging anyone's work. It was letting anybody put their work into it just as much as they could take. So you can kind of see already that that relativist mindset was already, uh. that postmodernist idea was already coming. But he really like took it to the extreme by saying, if you are actually not judging, then this is artwork. So they had this stipulation that they weren't going to judge. And he knew they had to accept his art piece, quote unquote. So now, basically, in our day and age, urinal equals art. And what postmodernists uh. believe truly is that really honestly i saw this with my eyes i saw the true believers they have liberated art quote unquote from enslavement anything Uh, which we would say therefore nothing is art and i mean there are just endless essays and books and books and books and books with these people just and honestly i've read a lot of it because i had to and it is 
it's so nothing, but it's so, they really think that they, you know, everybody wants to matter. Everybody wants to feel like they, they matter. And, you know, like in every single part of the world and every, whatever you can think of, people want to matter. And what some people will, uh, even anyways. So is this, is this like an artistic version of a participation trophy? Yeah. Where every every kid wins something because we're all special. Well, I don't know because they still like they still love to give each other accolades, and it's funny because they act like nothing's better than anything else. And yet, I would always question my teacher. Then why are we studying these particular artists? You know, you, it, yeah. it it relativism always contradicts itself. So, would you say also is it is it a stretch to say because it's starting to feel similar to me um, that this this is sort of like the shock art, the uh, crucifix in the urinal, the elephant dung on the Virgin Mary. And today, to this very day, November 24th, um, I read an article from Spain where an artist, and I'm using, you can't see, but there they are, the scare quotes. An artist uh, used, he, he purloined consecrated hosts from a Catholic church. And he spelled out the word pederasty, which is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. child child molestation in Spanish on the sidewalk. Um, they, they photographed the display and they featured it in an exhibit in a public art gallery, mm-hmm. a public art gallery. Now, for, for anyone uh, who might be listening who's not Catholic or doesn't understand what, what this would mean, a consecrated host to us, to Catholics, that is god that is jesus christ body blood soul and divinity once it's consecrated so it's similar to the the satanic black masses they they get a hold of a consecrated host and use it that way but anyway um not to digress too far down this rabbit hole but this art movement it's like the political people have hijacked art and now the politically correct which is maybe closer to what we're talking about with relativism where everybody's equal. So yeah. it's it's pretty bad what's what's happening to art and I'm I'm by no means I mean I consider myself an artist in the written word because I'm a writer but you are an actual artist artist who has a degree in fine art. So this has to be really painful to you. Well, I think for me the pain had cuz I got I went two ways. I got a degree in fine arts and English. And so studying those two different fields, I studied a lot of like philosophical reading and I would, it's, it was just interesting to me how often it would overlap that I would have, I would be fighting what felt like the very, very similar fights, even into the sciences a little bit. But this idea of relativism is so insidious to the world. And it, I, I mean, I feel like it's relatively new. Probably everybody does, but there's just, yeah, it's, it is maddening because, you know, especially because of their contradictory nature and that's, you know, relativism on its face is, is a contradiction because if somebody says relativism is true, you say, well, that, then that sentence doesn't matter because that sentence is relative. Yeah. So, so relativism is contradictory. And so, yes, it's maddening that these people feel this way, the postmodernists feel this way, and yet they always contradict themselves because they still have, you know, 
I don't know. Well, it's their, it's like, like usual with this sort of person, it's their intentions that matter, not their processes and not their results. So, but I, I just want to ask you a question. I, you and I have had talks over the years about movies and about songs and music and mm-hmm. uh, just everything in, under the sun. And we've, we've had some disagreements. For example, uh, the old adage, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Now, if you take that to its logical conclusion, then you wind up with artistic relativism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you could also read that beauty is in the eye of the beholder to to be a fantastic way to explain the, the differences in us and the way we view the world and the prism that we look for. Because, uh, you know, if like General Patton said, one of my favorite quotes from him, if if everyone's thinking alike, then someone isn't thinking. And I, to some extent, I think that applies to appreciation of different aspects of art too, doesn't it? Isn't there room for differences there? Yeah. So I think maybe it would seem like I would be the one if I'm saying like I'm platonic, like let's, I'm not saying that I believe there's a perfect, there's like, there's no way artists are going to agree on the perfect painting or the perfect movie. There's, there's always room for diversity in taste, but on people who believe in like postmodernist movement, they, they will still say, of course, everybody has taste. Everybody's are valid. No one's taste is any more valid than anyone others. So you can like, wait, wait, does a taste ha- have to be valid? What, I guess what I'm asking here is if there's a, a grocery store next door to a whole foods and the food snob types and the health, the health nuts or whatever, people who will only eat tofu that was grown on the dark side of a swamp and wasn't exposed to any CO2. I don't know that, there's room for those people to go to Whole Foods and get that stuff that they consider pure. And there's room for people like me to go get bacon. Mm-hmm. So does that translate across? Why is a taste in art have to be valid? Is valid a way to look at a taste? Well, if you're of the validity of your opinion about something in art is, is, gonna depend on like if you just say I like that it's it makes me happy it's the you know like you're a writer so you know if you're giving somebody criticism on their writing you have to have more to say than just I like it I don't like it so taste oh that's a great point (laughs) taste is important even if you're just talking about like let's say strictly visual or strictly like just paintings or something Yes, there's going to, I will argue, like, you know, we studied um, a lot of postmodernists, like, there's just a big black dot, or, you know, uh, Rothko, you've got just splatter paint everywhere, you've got, or no, that's not, that's Pollock, Jackson Pollock, you know, you got splatter paint, and people will argue to the death how important it is, and the, the whole idea in the art culture, like, people who's, you know, who really care about what's important and what will, you know, be historically important. They'll have all these reasons and everything, but, like, I I will argue with my teacher to the death that if you're trying to say that, then you are not truly a postmodernist. And to be frank, the teacher I'm thinking of, she did eventually acquiesce to say she is a modernist and she's... But, okay, that's too far into it. The point is that, yes, there's room for taste in all of the arts. And... 
it's not that some peoples are better than other peoples, but you you need to be able to argue your point. If your point, you know, like some people will say, I just like it. Well, that's okay. That's fine. But it is more, you know, like in everything, like people also say they just like this trashy TV or whatever. Yeah. Or whatever, you know, it's, it's always art should do something to you. It should move you. Well, so technically speaking, someone like you can discuss things like lighting and brush strokes and all the technical aspects. And I sort of think of it like this with, with writing, writing is to me, first and foremost is story. It's about story. If Mm -hmm. we're talking about fiction, Um, but it's also about the technical aspects. It's about how does a person construct their sentences? Do they use punctuation properly? Do they understand, you know, the placement of, of verbs and, and do they split infinitives and all that other technical stuff? But we learn because that, that takes away from someone who's reading it, who, who does have a grasp on that stuff. It can take away from it. It can. Um, even though the story might be there. Some people, you know, the, the same, same deal. I've read, oh my goodness, did I read some crazy stuff. Like people who purposely don't use punctuation, who don't use spaces, whatever. And some people are like, this is the greatest thing of all time, you know. Yeah. But I know it, exactly what you're talking about. And the, but the you're the point you're making is great, and it's actually the reason why I thought of this episode was because Pixar has a new film coming out today, and I'm or technically tomorrow, and I'm so excited to go see anything that they make because their focus is always on story, and they 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 do not ever like they're not shy about saying that every single one of their directors, every single one of their writers, their founder, everybody that works there. In fact, it's the entire Disney company because I worked at the parks and we're all called cast members, but we're all called storytellers. We're all part of the story. The most important thing about Disney, I mean, besides there's, you know, technical like safety and stuff, but show is one of the most important aspects. And doesn't doesn't all art, all forms of art tell a story? So story really is everything. And my teachers would argue with me, like, oh, it doesn't have to tell a story. It doesn't have, you know, um, it doesn't have to mean something. That's what I was, and I was always fighting that. Like, if it doesn't mean something, then it's meaningless. Nihilistic, and which is part of this culture that we've, we're evolving into, where nothing is something. And in fact, it's something to be admired, almost. Well, and it goes into anything you're interested in, like inventors, inventions. You're not going to have a consensus of 100% of, you know, thoughtful inventors on what's the greatest invention of all time. You're going to have a a lot at the top, and they're all going to agree it's not the Snuggie. (laughs) Okay, so now that we've got a a little foundation here, um, and everyone can clearly see your snobbery on display. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about your snobbery, shall we? Well, yeah, I have a passion in this area. It's even before I went to school. You're mm-hmm. a snob. Say it. My my snobbery, as you say, came about ever since I was a, a, for my whole life that I've been talking about stuff. I even I had the most like distinct like not in everything, not in food and. But, like, as far as film goes, like, I always had this distinguished taste for good story when it came to film. 
And then my siblings have always called me a snob with music and film and TV. You know, it's true. They, it's true. They have. Yeah, and even with you and I, we've gone back and forth uh, on people like uh, Thomas Kincaid, who is considered an anathema if you are in the fine art world. But you maintain yeah. is a legitimate artist. Well, okay, you say I maintain he's a legitimate artist, but what I really maintained was sort of the crux of what we just were talking about, that it does move people. Um, when they look at his stuff, they they see something to them that that they take as beauty, that, that they like, that creates a visceral, not something, I don't think anyone looks at a Kincaid and goes, oh, people think I should like that, so I'm going to like it. I think they really feel something there. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't, <laughs> technically speaking, I mean, I, I certainly know he's no, he's not Michelangelo or I don't know how you feel about Norman Rockwell. Maybe I do. I'm sure we've talked about it, but he's well, not even that. But Yeah, Rockwell is, so that's another thing too. Like there's, there's different like genres, like Norman Rockwell is an illustrator, but Kincaid is like clearly a commercial artist. So yeah. in school we studied that as kitsch. That's And Big Macs are commercial food and people love them. Mm-hmm. So, but can a Big Mac ever move your soul the same way a filet mignon can? I don't know. No, no, it cannot. So, touche on that, and I move to give you that point. I do. But not only do I get it, but uh, as I said, as a writer, I see people reading things like the trashy romance novels and stuff, and and I just, I know what good literature is, and I know what it's not. Um, exactly. Are there lesser, lesser quote, lesser forms of literature that are still enjoyable? There absolutely are. Um, Dr. Seuss, you, some people would call it a lesser form, but I think there's a genius in his work, a lot of his work, that is is just incredible, but he'll never be seen. It's sort of like how uh, Pixar hasn't won an, an Academy Award because they can't take it seriously or something like that. I don't know what it is, but they have won um, it. They just they created an animation category. So animation yeah, film. no, I mean, I mean, as a you know lead film, like like when Beauty and the Beast was up for Best Picture, why did it not win? Well, and it will never happen again because right after that they created a separate category for animated films. So an animated yeah, because they got scared because they got scared because their world was about to topple because something that wasn't serious whatever that means it was was threatening to to be there sort of like uh, could we digress to politics sort of like donald trump and how the establishment and uh just so i'm really clear i am not a donald trump supporter per se um but the establishment republicans they look at him with disdain he's not serious he's not a real he's something it's it's all sort of the same kind of something i don't know I don't know what it is, but it's it's different when it comes to art because in art, there really is a standard. There really is, whether the art is music or, or paintings or drawings or, or, or books, there really is a standard. But the question everyone always says, and it's the question of authority, just like with religion, right? And why the Catholic Church, some people have a problem. It's always about the authority. Who are you to tell me mm-hmm. um, what I should like? Because a lot of people, and people walk around this way. I know people who I've seen them myself, and I've probably even felt this myself here and there over my long life. Um, gee, that's supposed to be really good. Or you hear about a movie, like a foreign movie. Oh, that's supposed to be good because some expert likes it. 
and so part of us is like reaching inside of ourselves and we go, you know what? I really, I trust that this person says that and I really should like that, but I don't know. So maybe it's an acquired taste or does it mean that we can't make ourselves like something artsy unless we're like brought up that way? Or does it mean that quote regular people are shunning truly good things? I think and, that, yeah, I think that most of the time people, regular people are shunning really good things because I think most of the time people, it's easier, just like in everything, it's, I'm telling you, it's all back, everything is like everything else. I, it's, it all overlaps and it's easier to not work out. It's easier to not go to church. It's easier to read, you know, whatever, Fifty Shades of Bloch than Grapes of Wrath or whatever. And it doesn't, that's the point is that you don't have to like all of the things at the top, but you should be, and I say top, you know, whatever. It's, there's reasons why these things are considered good and you should take them in. Like, I don't read a lot of, um, I don't really read a lot of there's a lot of stuff I don't read. I don't read a lot of scary stuff. I don't read a lot of sad stuff. doesn't mean it's not good. I just, I kind of know my taste, but I still try to fill my brain with stuff and my, my life with stuff that, that, um, has artistic aesthetic, does something, you know, for my soul. Like I, I've noticed more and more lately, even for myself, I can't just sit down and just watch whatever on TV. I have a few things that are kind of like potato chip TV, but is that like popcorn movies? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, okay. yes. Got it. Why can't you have popcorn TV? <sighs> I feel like at home you tend to eat potato chips. At movies you eat popcorn, you know. Whoa. You know, there's an episode there. <clears throat> the great potato chip versus popcorn debate. I am squarely on the side of popcorn myself. Oh, yeah, right. Potato chips soaked in oil. Gosh, so good. Okay, I have a question for you. Um, I think that we've established that there is such a thing as uh, a objective standard of, of beauty, of art and beauty. <clears throat> is there truth in beauty? I know there's beauty in truth. Uh, when, you, when you find a truth and you know it to be true, say, say Jesus Christ himself, who is truth, there is beauty there. <clears throat> but is there truth in beauty? So when we're looking at a piece of art or or we're reading artistic literature, is there truth in there because it's beautiful? Yes, definitely. There's no beauty without truth. That is why even to a layman in whatever field you're talking about, there is the ability to be moved by truly great work. Truly, as long as one is seeking the truth in the art, they can find it. Hmm, where have we heard that before? Seek okay. and you will find. And one of my favorite writers, uh, Percy Shelley, wrote that poets, artists, are the, quote, unacknowledged legislators of the world. That through their work, they are the ones impacting culture, lives kind of thing. I love that. Like, the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Yeah. They, people don't notice it, but they are <clears throat> impacting the culture. And this can be for better or worse, by the way, Will and Grace. He said poetry, <laughs> quote, awakens and enlarges the mind itself by rendering it the receptacle of a thousand unapprehended combinations of thought. And you by know what? This is, this is crazy. 
this is crazy that you mentioned this because I was very recently listening to a lecture by Dr. Kraft, and it was more it was more or less about different philosophers and he was talking about uh, Heidegger, who was from the early 20th century. Uh, and Heidegger said that poetry may be more objective than science. What? He actually, he, he felt, uh, he and a lot of people feel that it allows more things into its, into its like scope. It encompasses like the possible, the impossible, the known, the unknown. Whereas science only has room and it has there you go. It has very rigid lines around it. But Man, poetry that's awesome. I wish we'd study Heidegger in school. That's that's so awesome. Yeah, Heidegger's fun to read. Uh but th- th- on this point, it it's it just crazy that you mentioned that and, and this was definitely not rehearsed and I had just just heard that. And when you said that about uh Percy Shelley uh talking about poetry, who I also love Percy Shelley, I absolutely love his poetry. Mm-hmm. So and that was in an essay he wrote. It was an essay. Uh, it's called a rare a, essay. Yeah, he didn't uh, write a lot of them. Called a defense of poetry and poetry. We learned and he meant poets. Poet, a poet. That's an artist at that time. An artist, somebody yeah. moving the world. They they were definitely thought of quite differently <laughs> back then than they are now. I I, I want to tell you something else that I was recently reading. Uh, some C.S. Lewis, who we both love very much. And I went back to it today when I was thinking about what we were going to be talking about. And the argument from desire, which Lewis is is really famous for, uh, argument for God from desire. And it just in a nutshell, we're not going into that, but just in a quick nutshell, that is where he explains, and it's very intuitive, that for every natural desire we have, there is something to satisfy it. If we're hungry, there's food. If we're lonely, there's people, blah, 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 um, for natural desires. But there's something that we all have a desire for that we cannot find on this earth. And we all know it and we all feel it. And and that's sort of taken this conversation to the next level, which is what prompts the artist and, and the search for beauty and all of that, right? But when we understand something analytically – like maybe an art critic or a a writing critic then and then the public thinks they understand something and they we dominate it and we use it for our own convenience like we do with with mass-produced art and mass-produced film and books uh romance novels whatever we we're reducing it um we're 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 sort of ignoring what it's supposed to be and what its final cause and 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 we treat it more in terms of quantity instead of quality and like lewis talked about the quantitative being what we really should be focusing on because that's like aristotle's uh causes the efficient cause and the final cause what is the final cause of a thing that is its purpose so instead of us thinking about what is the purpose and the final cause of and that's probably where someone like you comes in and says, this thing is up here because of this, and it does have meaning. That's its final cause. Anyway, um, just like what, what I'm saying by that is if you look at something like love uh, and an end, everything has an end. 
whether it's a quantitative end or not. And the quantitative end of something is just, oh, well, the movie's over. Oh, well, the, you know, the book at the end of the romance novel. But the qualitative end is something else. It's, it's seeing its purpose. So take, take life, for example. What is the quantitative end of life? It's death. Mm-hmm. But what is the real end of life, as in the purpose or the efficient co- or the final cause? That's love. So you could say the quantitative end of life is death, but the qualitative end of life is love. And it's, I think it's the same thing with art. I think it's if, if we break it down in, in to what we're supposed to look at it as, then we will find that meaning. And we'll say, oh, life isn't just about dying. It's about loving and it's about all these other things. But if we don't, then we just eat popcorn while we read the book or watch the film. Then the end of it is just the end of it. Did that make any sense at all? <laughs> yeah. Okay, because that that's kind of how this really started gelling for me. I used to be a lot more open to maybe there's not artistic, objective, beauty, truth, but I I, I really really am getting more and more sure. And it doesn't is. mean that like I, it's funny because I I love romanticism. Uh, what I mean, the writers like like. Um, all the romantic writers and all the thought that was put into at different times in history, people have actually artists have actually thought like use their brains to think about what does it mean to be an artist? And that's the philosophy of art. And we don't do that anymore. And so we just threw up our hands and say, everything's art because you can't (laughs) judge anyone. And that's the opposite of what, of what life has always been about. And it didn't mean that everybody had to paint the same thing, although things go in trends or that everybody had to write the same thing. Although things went kind of, you know, there's, there's like, you can see times in history when everybody's doing, uh, sonnets or whatever, but that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that's good. And in fact, usually a new movement would be started by somebody with an original thought or whatever, but it does mean that, I don't know, I just love this about, like, real true artists. Not snobs, not stereotypical whatever you'd think of from a movie or whatever, but real people who really care about art, and not art for art's sake, not avant-garde, not necessarily, but art for what it can do for the soul of, of humanity, for what it can do to two people, four people. And even if that is just you describing yourself, I love that about artists trying to figure out what's good. It's, it's awesome. Like trying to decide. And I think it's easiest in things like film. I feel the most confident myself writing reviews for film. Although sometimes I fall really short. I don't realize that, Oh, I didn't realize this really cool, not even just cinematography, but if we're, even if we're just talking story, sometimes I'll miss a whole thing that was like a nice undertone that I'm like, oh, but I think generally most of us are kind of comfortable saying that film was well done, that story was good. Like, I think that's why you see so many people write reviews for films. And it's harder with paintings because people are kind of like, you feel like you have to have some kind of a knowledge. But I still think it's exciting with a poem or with paintings or with sculpture to really just try to feel it and and really look and just, you know, make a decision and, I don't know, just try and just 
figure it yeah. out. It's it's harder. It's hard. It's not what we're used to. Everything right in your face. You know, it's easy to yeah. just say, "I like this. I don't like that." But you know, I'll tell you. You know what I like? I think a lot of people appreciate about like good film reviews. At least me. I don't like to read film reviews typically before I've seen a film because, and I don't. I don't see too many new movies nowadays. But because a lot of times the way it comes across is, is very uh, condescending almost. I don't know, but it seems like the really good ones and, and like some of yours that I've read uh, that you've reviewed, I like when you say it made me feel this way and I saw this and I thought of this because it's, you're personalizing it. But at the same time you say, why? Like, like if I were reviewing a book or a short story and I would say, I it made me feel really good when I read this part of the story because I loved the way that he used expressive adjectives and you know blah 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 but so I'm saying that I personally liked it but I'm also saying why oh, and I've always I've always appreciated it's interesting speaking of Shelley or a lot of the writers the poets throughout history I think have always done the best criticisms of art or of other people, like, they have the most, they, they think, you know, and I, that's not why I do whatever. I, I think it's just the point of actually slowing down and thinking about it. And, like, I, Inside Out, I think, is one of the greatest films ever made. And it just I just out. watched it for the second time with my youth group, and it was way better than the first time. It's such a great movie. And it it was a it was a five year process for Pete Doctor, and it was this in crazy, insane. And that's not all. We're not talking like yeah, the technical work took five. No, no, no. the The story took five years. The story had to be worked and hammered and smoothed, and just such a labor of love and such a noble goal he had in mind for what he wanted to get across. He wanted to express truth. You're talking about truth and beauty. Pete Docter said over and over in, in interviews about this film, he want, he, there is a truth about being a little girl, about being inside the head of a young girl, about growing up. He wanted to express it. He wanted to show it in a way it hadn't been shown. And he also wanted to expound upon the concept, these big concepts of sadness and joy inside the human person and just all these great things that he of course it's every bit of it had to be true if anything wasn't then that story would fall apart not just the story the whole film would fall apart and yet i get sick when i you know it didn't have very any really many bad reviews i don't think it had i haven't even read one but if it did yeah, no so for, I, I would just be it's it's crazy to me to think that a critic can sit down and spend half an hour an hour or whatever writing a review and say they didn't like the film i'm sure there's a couple out there that didn't in fact i've actually i've argued with people who didn't really didn't like the film and i just think like you you can't you you just don't have the right this is when i get mad like when somebody just flat out says no i didn't like it what didn't you like about it Eh, it was boring Okay, I get, I get, I don't get just get mad because I liked it. It's not some kind of like, it's my team, it, they should win. It's like, I believe that these kind of things deserve more. And I truly believe, based on the people who I'm talking about who didn't like this film, that like we were talking about earlier, they didn't like this film because it's too hard. It's too challenging. Yeah. And they don't want to be challenged. They want to go into a film and they want a lot of loud noises and they want a lot of, 
little <laughs> little yellow creatures saying ba 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 ba. Anyways, yeah. No, you're you're right on the money there. Um, we got a little off track. I wanted to ask you or mention, maybe ask you, what God thinks about these things. We I already think I mentioned that we know that Christ Himself is truth, um, yeah. and He is certainly also beauty. Mm-hmm. God. God God created beauty just you know you can go to Plato and his forms platonic forms and you can see how the ancient Greeks were struggling to find the truth of God and and a lot of people myself included feel that they were uh, given a role to be precursors to to God's word coming to us it came before the new testament obviously but um God's very interested in beauty. He created it, and it is a standard, and it's out there. But uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And uh, you can tear that verse apart. I love the in its time. Uh, that means a lot to me. We could we could probably visit that. But here's, here's another one, and this one I love so very much. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And mm-hmm. that right there alone tells you, I think it, I think it sort of just puts a win in your column because you're supposed means you're supposed to find these things that are true and noble and right and pure. And th- that's what you're supposed to think about. And then Isaiah chapter 40, uh, to go back to the, the platonic forms thing, in Isaiah, the, the grass and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Um, bringing me to the head of lettuce thing from Plato. We all know what a perfect head of lettuce in our mind might look like. And if you set it on a shelf and just let it go and decay over time, it won't look the same anymore but yet it's still the same sort of core but it's not that ideal it's not the ideal mm-hmm. and then uh, go to the book of Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 the Lord does not see things the way you see them people judge by outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart and that's it isn't teaching us that you can't just look at something like a pretty person or uh, you know a with a 40 40- million uh, 400 million dollar budget and just because of that outward whatever that's not necessarily truth or purity or nobility or any of that so the outward appearance we're not supposed to just take that so maybe you know this whole idea of art is definitely more along the lines of what you've been saying it it, it should mean something and you should have to dig for it and so it's not uh Something that we're all, it's sort of like eating oysters, right? It's a, an acquired taste. We're supposed to acquire that taste. We're supposed to seek out the, the beautiful and the true. And if we don't know what they look like, we need to train ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's funny because I, I don't mean to just constantly be talking about Disney, but Disney's success, uh, Walt Disney specifically, not even going into Pixar, but Walt Disney's success is so, like, undeniable, unarguable. Disney's like this huge presence in the world and they've had their ups and downs or whatever, but it's so funny how different the world was. Like you didn't, you, first of all, you didn't argue with Walt Disney, but 
it also what he set out to do was obviously what everybody should be doing. Like everybody was trying to make these 2D cartoons. Nobody thought you could sit through an hour and a half of them because they were usually really, really vapid, really, really boring. I mean, not boring, but just, you know, they're like a comic strip. That's about how much of your attention span it could hold with these little drawings. Walt Disney knew it was all... No, there's, it's all about story. And, and it's funny because you read, as you study the history of that company while he was alive, especially, there's no, you're not arguing about it. You just agree. Yes, we're trying to make the best possible story. You're not trying to pump out a film. You're not trying to sell a million things. It's not, it's, it's, you're, and Pixar's continued that. That's why I love them so much. Yeah, so, definitely. Everybody being in agreement on that is is like my idea of heaven. I think this is why I'm so drawn to work in an animation studio, at least a, like especially a good one, because I want to be with people who are trying to do this. I feel like I spent my whole life fighting people who are like, oh, who's to say what's good or what's not good, you know? So that that takes us squarely to the goal, um, the million dollar question: What is the goal of art? Then is it? Is it to make us feel something good, bad, uh, shocking, horrifying? Is that the goal of art? What is the goal of art? Is there a goal to art? Yeah, that's the question. And art critics, teachers, know-it-alls, everybody's going to give you a variety of answers from the purpose of art is to inspire the world to there is no purpose in art and anyone who thinks different (laughs) is a self-deluded fool. That was me. Very similar to the debate over God, and I think it makes sense that it would be one or the other. Either God is real or he isn't. The two extremes, like, they can't be any more drastic. Either creating art should be for a purpose or it is meaningless. So, has a meaning, does not have a meaning. Like, that's the way that I see it. I've been accused of being too rigid on this, like I said, being like a foundationalist, not seeing the grays, the shades of 50 shades of gray, if you will, in certain issues. But, I really don't know how you could argue that sometimes art has meaning or maybe it's just self-expression, but it also may be completely arbitrary and somehow that makes it artistic. So I kind of have this thing in my head. Um, By the way, I don't, I, you can't, I don't know that you could convince me that something is created arbitrarily and that quality is what makes it artistic because it's arbitrary. I mean, that, that's, Looney Tunes, man. That's crazy talk. But I, I have this notion or this picture in my head of an artist, not necessarily a writer either, because a writer is, I think, consciously trying to tell a story. That's sort of the purpose, right? Um, but I have this this idea in my head that that a great, say, a painter, uh, one of one of the greats, you know, whoever, Raphael, Michelangelo, whomever. They, they're reaching for something and they may not know exactly what they have something inside of them and they put it out there and maybe they find the meaning in the process, but I don't have this picture of them going, okay, I'm going to make this painting and it's going to evoke this meaning and I want people to take it this way, quite the same way writers do. Do, Am I on track there? Well, like for me, if I'm doing an oil painting, like my... My favorite thing is to do an oil painting, and I couldn't really express to my teachers exactly what it is, except if I'm doing a painting, let's say, of my grandpa or of my godson, I'm going to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, like, over and over and over until they exist on that 
on that canvas. And what I what does that sound like? I'm looking for the truth of that painting. I'm if, if that's what I'm trying to express. Other painters are trying to express something out of their head. You know, you've got lots of uh, surrealists. So yes, it's very similar. They're trying to express a truth. They're trying to express. They have a. I don't know. I don't know of any painter who sets out with no goal in mind. They have something they're trying to get out of their head onto the canvas. Yeah. Well, here's here's the truth about art to me. Um, I, I do a lot of thread pulling, as I call it. I'm, I read a lot. I'm a voracious reader, uh, especially uh, when I get going on the danged old internet and those interwebs. But um, I pull a lot of threads, and I'll see something and I'll open a new tab and I'll save it for later and read it. But anyway, I was recently reading, uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I was reading about awe, the science of awe, A-W-E. Mm-hmm. Um, we use the word all the time, awesome, that's awesome, awesome. And when when you really use the word in its literal meaning and what it's about, it's a feeling of vastness, something larger than yourself. Um that the word awesome so misused, but it leads to words like awesome. Um, awe should it, it makes a person expand their base of understanding to accommodate this new thing that just hit them, right? And it can be bad awe or it can be good awe, but something hits you and you stop for just a second. And in this in this thing that I read, these these uh, this paper, it's from I don't know the early two thousands. These two psychology professors were were actually outlining. They, they were breaking down what are the qualities of an awe-inspiring encounter. We're like what happens, and when awe happens, it it takes a person's attention and turns it outward instead of toward the self. Which I would argue nowadays everyone's so busy thinking about themselves and wanting to be famous and all that. But when something strikes you, something that is truly awesome, and it hits, it, it makes you focus outward. Um, it might be something big or something small. It might be natural. But whatever it is, it stops you cold. Now, the other positive emotions that we have um, are very still. And so awe makes you reevaluate what you actually know. You look at something that you never you never thought of before. It's just so awesome. The word awesome. Um, another study that was in this same piece that I was reading said that, that they found a link between a feeling of awe and a feeling of timelessness. And I started thinking about that and I think it applied. I could see where it applied in my life, but they had a series of experiments that showed that people who felt awe were less pressed for time for a short period afterward because they let go of themselves, I think. Um, and the and, and another strong thing about awe in, in all of these studies, and it's very intuitive, it makes you want to express it. Everyone has a strong feeling of, what it, of wanting to explain this, what you saw, what, what you experienced. So we're, we're really getting somewhere here, right? Mm-hmm. And yet another study showed that people who felt awe, they had a really strong need to attribute it to something, to some kind of agent, something about awe that leads people to, to want to say that it came from some something, some supernatural force, rather than just happening by chance. Isn't that interesting? And then finally, mm-hmm. even yet another 
showed that uh, even more than the other positive emotion, it promotes generosity. Uh, go figure. It improved participants' ethical decision-making. There's a paper still under review. Uh, it'll be a peer-reviewed paper indicating that awe can make people more humble. And it makes perfect sense. You can't see anything higher than yourself if you're always looking down like so many people are. But when you look up in awe at something, it shows you that there are things that will surpass you, hence humility. And so art, when it really hits you and you see it and you are awestruck by it, it gives all those positive things to you. And it makes you want to explain it the way you're trying to tonight, the way we're talking about it. That's why it's important that that's it why not the, be watered That's down. why Catholic churches are filled to the brim with awe-inspiring works of art. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the reason. And I would say that this uh, reminds me also of Socrates who's the wisest man because he recognized all that he didn't know. So I imagine him kind of like, like a lot of the saints who I think of as being kind of like childlike in just viewing the world with awe and wonder, questioning. Like, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? That's what artists can do, should do. Little kids, it's, I, I, I couldn't find the study, but there's, it is like over and over and over. Like five-year-olds, you give them paper and they just go to town, draw, 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 and they draw what's in their head and they just just let them go. And people start to lose that as they get older. And I don't know, I we lose so much as we get older. But that, if you can hang on to that, the and and because they want kids want to get it out, like whatever dream they had or what they saw, like it's so cute. Whenever I'm teaching like first grade, kindergarten, like they. The their favorite thing is when I I say okay, draw a picture of what you did this weekend or oh yeah I cannot wait like they want to express it. That is a yeah. very pure, very good feeling and it is the best. I mean, creative blocks when I have them they are painful. Like they're like heartbreak. Like it's not good. Like it we this is also how we are like God. We I mean we are creators. As my favorite thing, if I create something, I just feel just close to God, like, like him, like he, look at him, look what he's done, like everything we do is a drop in the bucket, but I also feel like it can, he's proud of it, you know, like he didn't think of, like, it's not that he didn't think of it, but he gave me my mind to, and my ability to, to do whatever I do, and so when I do something, he's a father, he's so proud, like, he, look at what all of his creation is doing. Versus, look what they're doing. They're sitting there watching The Bachelor, whatever. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, the goal, I I think we just, we, maybe we stumbled on it or maybe it just landed in our lap. But I, I did, I before we wrap up, want to mention something you and I have talked about many times before, maybe not for a while, but the the difference between artists of long ago and artists now and their motivations. And, and I'll use the word disordered here. Uh, just like someone who it's the old adage, using your powers for good instead of evil type thing. Um, there's so many talented people nowadays, like ridiculously talented people who have a disordered use of their talents they, they don't use their artistic abilities for anything besides self-serving, maybe, or even worse than self-serving. They use them uh, 
to tear things down and to tear people down. And we could talk about artists in the Renaissance and just look at the architecture. Those artists, tell me architects aren't artists. The paintings, the everything, it all reached for God. All of it, it all reached for God. Uh, the, the greatest works of art in history all reached for God. And I think the moderns, and this is my theory that I've told you before, um, and I, I kind of proved it with that video that I made with that Phil Collins song, but I think the modern artists are reaching for God too. They're just not consciously aware of it. And a lot of what they produce, if you just look at it a slightly different angle, you can see that that it's really about something besides the mundane earthly thing that they they present it to be about. So the goal of art to me is to reach God and God is truth and God is beauty. So when a person is given artistic abilities like you um, or Rachel and her paintings um, or, you know, whatever famous artists we can think of, they're given it for a reason. It's sort of like the Spider-Man thing and the great power and great responsibility with great talent to me comes the responsibility to reach for truth and beauty. Right. And I think that everybody, I think people should be more accountable. Everybody should be more accountable. Like, like how nobody like, Oh, I'm not a philosopher, but everybody used to have some level of philosophical thought in their day. Like people thought more. And I think the same with art. Like, you know, I don't think it should be like, Oh, she's this or like an art. I think everybody should think of themselves as like how kids are like artistic in some way. Um, I think of God like I I look at the world and its beauty and its wonder and how much it's inspired people, including the human figure for the Renaissance, you know, sculptors and painters and the mountains for impressionists and everybody's been inspired by art. And at the Heartstone Lounge where I used to work, the up at the top it said, "Nature is the source of all artistic expression." Yeah, God is. I think of him as like. Or, you know, how when you're a kid, you want to be like your dad or your mom, you know, you want to copy them, you like, you want to be as good as them, not in any bad way, but you, you just are so proud and you just want to be just like them. And I think when you come from that perspective with art, I think that's when you're in your best place. When you, when you're like, God, you're so amazing. And I just, I, you, you show me what's possible, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and back to the awe thing, we, we probably, to the point where we're going to start wrapping up, but yeah, I love the idea that God gave us an emotion like awe and those things that they found in these studies, uh, some of the positive things, you know, improving their ethical decision making, making people more humble. Um, mm. it's just, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Because mm-hmm. that's the gift that we wanted. We wanted something. Hey, look at this thing. It just struck me down this mountain. And now I would like to tell people about it. And instead of verbally, when you have the talent, if you can render it on a canvas or or on a page or in a song, how much the better. And well, like, so, when, like when Grandpa died, like that was the hardest thing still that I've gone through. And my favorite the 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 one thing that like i feel made it better was the this story that i wrote like that it was just a dialogue between me and him and you oh, and, i remember that yeah 
it is it it feels like something oh, like an exhale like is such there i i really feel bad for anybody who doesn't know that feeling but i mean if you maybe it's just cuz i have a desire for it maybe other people don't have a desire for it but it is the most it's like that like that C.S. Lewis that you're talking about, that you don't have a desire for something that can't be satisfied. Yeah. The same can go for something like deep heartache and, uh, you know, so many artists, like, come on, that's the stereotypical artist, like, depressed. and because, But it's true that these, these emotions, these deep, deep emotions, grief, they look at the Psalms. I mean, some of the most yeah. beautiful words ever written out of pain and anguish or joy and all these things. But but it, what were they doing? They were, they were reaching for God. They were reaching. Well, they were, exp- and, and that's why it's so c- cool and just perfect that Jesus is clearly expressed that God is tr- truth. So if you are searching for truth and if you are trying to express truth, then you are reaching for God, you know, even if you don't realize it. If you are searching for truth, I will take that person, like Mike Huckabee said, six days a week and twice on Sundays. I will take <laughs> I will take an artist who is genuinely trying to express themselves truthfully to somebody who's making derivative work and thinks that they're all good. And even if they're maybe a church goer, quote unquote, and this other person over here is, like Jesus says, he spits out the lukewarm. You know, yeah. give me, yeah. give me somebody really seeking. And I believe that extends to art. I know it extends to art hundred percent. If you are seeking the truth in art as a creator or as a, as a, as an intaker of art, you will find it. If you are so really did we, did we arrive at the end by deciding that the definition of art to us is reaching for God that is reaching for truth and beauty because those things do exist and we can reach for them. I a hundred percent would say that art is the desire to express beauty or truth, truth through beauty. I love it. I love it. hundred percent. So let's just uh, call it a day. And I'll just remind anybody that might be listening to please keep forward toward beauty and truth. How about that? Yes. God's and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart Then I shall bow In humble adoration And there proclaim My God, how great Thou art Great.